Hey everyone, and welcome back to another episode of The Negotiation. In this episode, we speak with serial entrepreneur and angel investor, Gregory Prudemont. Gregory is the founder of Next Step Studio, an accelerator for businesses in the food and food tech verticals based in Shanghai. He is also the co-president at La French Tech Shanghai, a community aimed at gathering the local tech community with an interest in France and building bridges between major innovation hubs. Gregory describes the Shanghai startup scene today in comparison to both France and North America, his experience being a foreign entrepreneur in China, what most Westerners get wrong about food and beverage in China, why Shanghai should never be considered an accurate representation of China as a whole, how the food tech industry has sprouted over the last decade in China, and the impact of the health and wellness industry on the F&B industry in China. Enjoy. So China, I mean, the Chinese culture, they are spending a lot of time around the table. In France, you always have these big stereotypes where people are going to spend two hours around the table for lunchtime and having wine and bread and everything. China is going to be very different. And over the past few years, the delivery business has changed everything because you can get anything delivered 24 hours. Of course, you will have every kind of Chinese food, but you also have pretty much access to every kind of global food, like from Africa, from the US, from South America. You have so many different trends. Very often, it's linked to travel. It's linked to the good vibes that they experience somewhere. And it's a way also for them to travel back to their holidays in Thailand if they manage to go to an island sometime. Home to over 4 billion people, the Asia-Pacific region boasts one of the most powerful consumer markets on the planet. Not only is it home to half the world's under 30 population, but it's also home to more than half the world's internet users. It's a market no globally-minded brand should ignore, but entering markets like China is no easy task. Just ask the likes of Microsoft, Google, Uber, and Facebook. Times are changing, and with the right partners, doors are slowly opening as more and more companies find success expanding into the markets of the Middle Kingdom. I myself spent eight years in China, mostly as a venture capitalist, helping early-stage tech companies enter the Asia-Pacific market successfully. This show is dedicated to uncovering and examining successful China entry and growth strategies by interviewing the people behind those success stories. My name is Todd Embley, and welcome to The Negotiation, brought to you by WPIC Marketing and Technology. Greg, welcome to the show. Thanks for coming on today. Hi, thank you for having me. Okay, so as we usually do with all of our guests, we'd love to know a little bit more about you. So please introduce us a little bit of who you are, how you ended up in China. What drew you to the country in the first place? What line of work were you in, you know, before you arrived in China and a little bit of what you're doing now? Sure, perfect. So that's exactly what we're going to talk about. So I have a, a, a quick background in uh, hospitality management back in France. I'm from Lyon in the, in the, in the center of uh, France. And I started to come to China from between 2000 and 2005, back and forth. I was at that time uh, really already having an entrepreneurial mind. And every time I, I had the chance to come to China, spending my summers, trying to go to school, doing little jobs on sourcing, trading, and everything. I was trying to use all these opportunities because on the side of uh, my studies in France, I started uh, learning Chinese. Uh, so I arrived here in China already having uh, quite a good Chinese. So like I was saying, from 2000 to 2005, back and forth every summer, because back then, life was way cheaper in Shanghai than it was in France. Now things have changed a little bit. Um, so actually, I was spending this until 2005, where I moved to Hong Kong uh, as an exchange student for one year. And in 2006, moved back to Shanghai. And that's where I started to, to settle and start my, my adventures. You mentioned about the cost mm -hmm. of living 
And I've, you know, we're going to talk about startups a yeah. lot, uh, something that I'm also familiar with as well. So that that's going to be fun. But I, I always thought, and I've had this conversation even recently about the cost of living in Shanghai. And what I found interesting, especially if you're, you know, a, a startup who's, you know, living on ramen and stealing your neighbor's Wi-Fi to get by uh, to build your company, that. Shanghai really was an excellent place to go because, yes, you have a lot of decision makers at Famous World globally, you know, global brands and the head offices there. But as as much as it can be as expensive as Paris or New York or any of the most expensive places in the world, you also it has a much lower floor. Yes, it's got the ceiling as high as anybody, but it has a super low floor. You can live way cheaper in in Shanghai than you could in New York or Paris. The, this for sure. You can start but with having a minimum spending every day. The problem is for a lot of uh, of the foreigners that are going to start a business here is how long can they take it, right? Uh, because we are talking about a much lower floor, but it's it's quite low, and it's also very local. So it means also that you need to understand more about the Chinese culture, how to talk to people, Chinese language a little bit, uh, because you're going to address and and go to some restaurants where you don't have English. Uh, translation and things like this, right? But I agree with you that you can start with a much cheaper. Starting a company compared to when you were uh, a few years back in, in China, now it's really cheap. It can be very fast. Uh, so China has, has been making things a lot easier, actually, for entrepreneurs to get started. Yeah, it's it, it's totally true. You, you, will, you, you will have to take a bit of a step back on the quality of experience of, of your life, of your apartment, of your food, of your transportation. Uh, sure, but you can do it. If you want to do it, if you need to do it, you can do it. How would you describe the Shanghai startup scene? Give us a little bit of, of your take on what goes on, the good, the bad, you know, all the things in there. And then maybe after that, what do you know about the startup scene in France? And can you compare and contrast those two? I think your audience is always clear about this, but Shanghai is not China. And as we always know, right, Shanghai is a very specific scene. So you, you do have a lot of foreign entrepreneurs and foreign startups. Let's say when I, I say that, it means a foreigner that is coming to China with a job or whatever it is, and then you get a great idea and say, okay, let's start a new business and let's create this startup from scratch, from zero here in Shanghai. So you do have this. I think there was definitely a boom a few years ago where there was many, many uh, foreigners launching projects and startups and everything. Uh, with all the situation going on, and of course, uh, with uh, the, the actual COVID situation, there is a lot more People starting because Shanghai is a bit becoming, or in China in general, is becoming a little bit more complicated for entrepreneurs that are starting with zero. And bootstrapping in China can be a little bit more difficult at the beginning because getting a seed investment is kind of difficult, uh, early stage investment. You have to know people. And it's not like in France, for example, uh, linking back to France, you have this, uh, what we call the BPI, which is a national bank that is financed by the government. And basically, they are the number one investor. Uh, in a, they have a stake in every startup in France right now. So if you need $50,000 to get an MVP running, this is feasible in, in France. China, if you don't have a good friend or a strong family behind you or don't have savings, it's going to be a little bit more difficult to find this kind of money. It might be easier, actually, to get a million dollars than getting $50,000 uh, in Shanghai, I would say. Would you be able to compare it to... 
you know, the most famous uh, startup ecosystem in the world, the Bay Area, Silicon Valley. Can you draw some comparisons between Shanghai and what it might be like to experience a startup there? In the US, you will have, in the Bay Area, you will definitely have a strong ecosystem with people that are like-minded. They probably had managed to get a job in already quite a famous company, famous startup in the area. So they build the, net, the network like this. Um, which means that they also have access to many, uh, probably VC, private equity fund, uh, personal investors, individual investors that could be helping. Here in China, I think that there is definitely a difference between the startup scene with all these wannabe entrepreneurs on one hand and the investment, which is not necessarily uh, to one to another. And in the investment side, you really have two kinds of crowd. You have the Chinese investors and the foreign investors. And those are two different animals. And, and depending on the startups that you are building right now, it, it's not matching everybody. Um, a lot of companies are going to be specifically be looking for foreign investors instead of Chinese investors. So it really depends on, on this. And the connection, uh, I, I would say in the Bay Area is a little bit easier, the access to these people, just for a coffee, just for a talk, and at least to poke them. It's a lot easier than here in China where Getting a meeting with those guys might be a little bit trickier. You really need to have good relationship. Yeah, uh, I would agree. You know, we're we're talking startups because you know, if it wasn't air apparent from your introduction, you have been uh, an entrepreneur, a lifelong mm-hmm. entrepreneur, really, uh, for quite some time. We're going to talk about food tech. We're going to talk about the food and beverage scene, but first. I know that you have a lot of experiences, entrepreneurial experiences, some of them with a past guest, uh, Joseph Constanti, who we had on the show as well, you know, uh, from Neil. Uh, you and him go back. You guys have gotten into some some fun stuff together before as well. Can you take us back and talk to us about some of the things you, you've done in the past being an entrepreneur in China? It was like, like, like when I think back about all this experience, it's really like thinking that I had different lives, right, in, in, in China. But if we go back to what I was saying, 2006, 2007, I met those guys that they just closed down their mini golf in a mall. Uh, and it was, a, uh, they called that, the, uh, what was the name? It was a lucky draw, lucky golf, lucky golf. Uh, and those, so Joseph Constanti and, and Ed Kim, they were just closing down on Valentine's Day. And we met in a, in a Korean barbecue and I have this uh, failed entrepreneur. Let's say me, I was just starting in China. I have no network. Um, my English was not what it is right now. So you can imagine the big gap. And, uh, and I have those guys, they were saying, okay, we need to meet more people. We need to meet more people. And we, we say, okay, let's, let's organize a networking event, right? And, and let's do this. I think in New York, you started to have something like this. And we did the next step Tuesdays, which is now the name of the company that I still carry on actually. Um, and next step Tuesdays, we're about gathering entrepreneurs just to build this network. Because back in 2006, 2007, um, it was more big corporation. Entrepreneurs, they were just starting in China, but it was still a very rare animal um, in Shanghai. And, uh, and entrepreneurs coming with their backpack and starting their business from zero, we needed to be able to connect with each other. At that time, you were looking for information. Most of the information about legal thing, registering a company, accounting and everything, everything was in Chinese. Uh, it was very difficult to, to, to get this. But lucky enough, 2008 was around the corner. 2008 was the Olympics in Beijing, which definitely changed everything. And when we are thinking about the Olympics, 
We know also that right behind there was a World Expo in Shanghai. So those three years from 2007 to 2010 were really were the moment where everybody who wanted to come to China, they all arrived at the same time. So we had a lot of smaller companies coming, of course, big corporations, but mostly were already there. But smaller companies, they were starting, entrepreneurs had a lot of opportunities on, on, on doing this. And with Joe, what we did, basically, we organized uh, like 300 events in three years, uh, something crazy. We did events. We were talking, uh, having entrepreneurs sharing their experience. We did events uh, basically on how to to fail in China because we were always hearing the stories about how to succeed in China. But we knew as a fact that there was many people failing. Um, and that's how we started. And, and moving forward, at some point, 2008, 2009, uh, Joe and I, we decided uh, to say, okay, let's put next step on the, on the side because uh, both of us were very bad at selling, to be honest. We were the same kind of personality, but... None of us really knew how to say, we, we knew how to help everybody, but very difficult on putting, you know, numbers at the end uh, of a, a contract or an invoice. And it was difficult. So at that time, he, he started other companies uh, that he talked in the previous show. And I went into consulting, bringing brands, mostly in food and beverage, to China. And that's how I started in, in, the, in the food business for really in, in China. And it was in end 2009, beginning of 2010. I think... It's incredible. And I, I mean, I went through this, too. And I look back, I feel like some of our stories of the, you know, the way that we met other people, the way that we sat around, you know, sitting in a Korean barbecue, complaining about a problem and then just going, well, let's let's solve this. Let's, you know, if we're having trouble meeting other people, let's create an event, you know, and I, it was a similar conversation even I remember between um, Cyril Eberswiler and Sean O'Sullivan, as he related to me, even just coming up with the concept of China Accelerator, it was like, how are we foreigners going to be able to invest in Chinese early stage startups, which in you know 2009 2010 are still hiding in the woodwork of china because they don't they're not so obvious and out front as they are today so how do we find them how do we track them how do we let get them to even take our money do we need to create this beacon right create an accelerator let them come to us we create community we create a whole network around the whole thing and then everybody's learning and growing and connecting and and the network effect kind of just takes it and creates the inertia from there but these are the things that are they're almost they're straight out of movies. They're like, you know, this is what you would think, you know, the Western world was like, I don't know, for, for people listening, like you what you would imagine it was like in the 70s. Oh, yeah, it was it was possible back then, but it's not possible now. I mean, are these happenstance ways is is China or other places in the world? Is it still open to entrepreneurship and innovation and being able to fail your way forward? Is it still possible now? I think it is it's still possible. I think it's just um, as a foreign entrepreneur and you, we say that, okay, you can start a business anywhere around the world. I don't think that China now is necessarily the place where you want to start, right? There are, there are, aware, there are a lot of other difficulties um, because of the Chinese culture, because of the Chinese uh, tech landscape, which is also very different than the rest of the world. So whatever you're going to do in China is probably going to have a lot of um, specificities due to this market, due to the tech and digital ecosystem that depending on what you're doing, what you're going to do in China is going to be different in the rest of the world. And, and because of what we said, yes, it's still uh, a lower uh, ground basically to get started. It's still a bit more expensive. There is a lot more rules that you have to understand. Uh, 
The way I always say it in China, we, we ask you as a foreigner, we ask you to play a game and to win at this game, right? You, you don't come in China to not make money. The Chinese government, in the way they are pushing you on the tax system is that you have to be successful and be profitable because that's how the tax system works in China, like in many other countries. So basically, you have to play this game, win at it, be good at it. The problem is as a foreigner, you kind of figure out the rules while you are playing. Um, because things are also changing so often. You know, every six months, you will have new HR regulation, new, I don't know, accounting, tax, whatever. And, and this is very difficult. And you have to be able to be very, very flexible. Whatever you are doing, it's not good for the next three years. It's probably good for the next six months. Um, we know that, uh, for example, ByteDance, they are reviewing ByteDance, a TikTok company. Um, they are redoing their uh, budget every two months. So they have a plan for two months and they are changing every two months because they don't know what's going to happen in the next six months, right? So that's how you have to be flexible. In my line of work in FNB, we have a big trend over the past year now where we have big company like a bubble tea company like Haiti, for example. Um, they are launching almost two flavors a month. So two new product a month. So, uh, so it, 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 people are all about the novelty. It's about new things changing, new habits, new consumer habits. And you don't know which uh, kind of app is going to be successful in six months, right? So it's changing all the time. A bit more difficult to adapt, uh, I think, it, compared to if you were doing a business in Paris, right? Or in, in the US. I inevitably would get asked a lot by startups at conferences and events around the world because they would see I'd be the China guy, I'd be representing China Accelerator, talking about China, startups in China, the ecosystem in China. And then I would get off stage and I'd be bombarded by people who want to talk to me about, hey, I've got this great thing. I've got, you know, and I want to take it to China. What do you think? What do you think? Can I, I'm going to take this to China. And I, I just always said, no, I said, don't do it. Don't go to China. I just because I, honestly, I'm going to tell you no, and, and you're going to have to you're going to have to ignore me and do it yeah. anyway. And that's almost the attitude you need to have if you're. I'm setting you up to be successful in China if you go by telling you don't mm-hmm. go there, and then you have to ignore me and go anyway. You you literally have to have that kind of persistence because I'll tell you what, China's hard. It is. Tons of opportunity. It is not built for you. It is built for their opportunity, not yours. You, if you're going to go there, the opportunity does exist, but you have to figure out how to make it for you. Leading back to, to the experience, that's exactly my, my when from 2010 to 2015, I was running a consulting firm here, bringing brands and concepts and everything. And so 2010, 2015 is a period after World Expo. So you have a few years there where it's booming, everything is open. And people are all coming. But then after you have bigger companies that say, okay, I'm missing China on my expansion plan. Uh, okay, let's do China. But then you start talking to companies that are not ready. Uh, and entrepreneurs and, and people, they, they say, China is not mandatory. China, China is going to be very complicated. There is a lot of things that your company is not even ready to deal with if you were working with, in your case, Canada, Mexico, or Germany, or whatever, which are a little bit more accessible countries, let's say next to you also, um, uh, geographically speaking. So China is not mandatory. You don't have to come to China if you are not ready. And if you are ready, it is going to be complicated. You know that you're going to have to invest. Not, it's not only about the money, but it's about the time and about the learning experience. Because it's not only about the economics, right? It's about the culture, the history, because all of this, weirdly enough, is linked to whatever you're going to do in China. You can be in the most advanced tech startup, there will be something linked to the Chinese history and Chinese culture, no matter what. 
100%. Okay, so now let's talk about the F&B. You know what? Introduce us to China's food and beverage scene a little bit. Give us the kind of the high-level overview, uh, set us up, and, and maybe, you know, what do Westerners maybe just not understand about food in China? Maybe I'm going to tell the, the story and how I, I got started in this so that uh, I, we will figure it out. So a few years back, uh, we started, like I have a friend, he had a very small Thai restaurant because his girlfriend was Thai. My friend is French-Italian. And he decided to buy over the little restaurant. We are talking about 14 seats in the former French concession on Chonglulu, Wulumuchilu, called Yorbantai, if you, if you remember that. Um, and, and from there, basically, uh, they wanted to open the number two. And we, uh, they came to me because uh, I was interested in investing in some uh, restaurant uh, business at that time. So we are talking about 2014, 2015. And we opened on Dagulu next to People Square. Another urban Thai, different concept, 80 seats, two floors, very different, but traditional uh, Thai food. Why French people are doing Thai food in Shanghai, don't ask. It's just opportunities. Um, but then we got it started on this. And business was going well. And two, three years after that, I started to be very interested. To me, I was a silent partner on this. And I was starting to be very interested on the new trends of on-demand delivery. So it was 2016, 2017. That's the beginning of what we call here Erleman Meituan, which are the Uber Eats and Deliveroo of the world. And so basically you can order whatever you wanted uh, in less than 45 minutes, delivered to your doorstep uh, at a very reasonable price. One foreigner started Sherpas, another platform a few years ago is a lot of uh, mishappening. Uh, but this was very, Sherpas was really targeting uh, foreigners. And I think it was just way too advanced for the market at that time. But all of my Meituan, they took China by, by storm and all the restaurant business. And me, I was amazed by this new trend where people, they were so lazy and ordering all the time. And I said, okay, when we wanted to open the number three and number four, at that time, Shanghai was trying to push restaurateurs to be outside, uh, not in the street anymore, but in the malls. And I was tired of negotiating with the landlord and it's okay, let's go for 15 square meter and let's find something like a Chinese entrepreneur will do. We find a space, we try. If it fails, we close. Or if it fails, we change the, the sign on the door and we do something new, which is a very Chinese approach. Like, let's see, right? Um, there is no business plan for three years to open a whatever nail salon in the street, right? It, it, let's just do it. Um, and we figure it out. And that's exactly the approach that I was having. I said, okay, how do we get a 15 square meter and we, 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 we changed that. So at the beginning, we took the restaurant that we had, the menu, the dishes, the prices, and we put it online. The average ticket was around $14, $15, I would say, for, for you guys, uh, US dollar. Um, and it was way too much when actually in China, the average ticket was already around 4 to $5 uh, US dollar at that time for the set lunch. So we, reprint, we took the brand that was your Bantai. We made something smaller and more expressed which is urban tuk-tuk, reduce the portion because people, they started to order food, not, you know, in Chinese culture, you put the dish on the, on the table, everybody shares. So you have more rice, every dishes are maybe 10, 15, 20% bit bigger than if you were eating alone. So we changed that, we still okay. So we have reduced the portion, people are eating in front of their computer, in front of their TV. So we, we changed the model. We took the dishes that we had optimized for something that was for delivery and we called that urban tuk-tuk. Um, and we started to do something that as foreign year was very difficult to, for other people to understand is that we were definitely starting to play the Chinese game. We had a friend that had a coffee shop in Kashanlu in the French concession also. 
this guy was running a coffee shop on a takeaway scene, a, a Chinese friend. But he had a full kitchen at the back. And we said, okay, can we make pad thai and curries outside? And that's how we started to have what now everybody calls a cloud kitchen. But it was in 2017 we started to do that. And that's how we started to be in the delivery business. So working with uh, focusing basically on everything that is on-demand delivery. So this urban food group uh, owns urban tuk-tuk. We are developing new concepts on the same model through Cloud Kitchen. So now we have 10 locations and we are doing uh, 1,500 delivery a day on curries and pad thai in Shanghai. That's incredible. I mean, any foreigner who, any expat uh, who's spent time in and around Shanghai, I mean, one word, Sherpas, right? Like that, it's just that everybody just sees the orange jackets and the orange bags and the, you know, like you just, they're, they're, they're a staple of the memory, uh, especially from, you know, 2010, 2020, uh, for, for being a China. Um, interesting. So Ulama, which is a delivery company. Uh, can you tell everybody what that means in English? Uh, Ulama means, are you angry? <laughs> I just, I always, I just found that because I always translate it. It always made me chuckle every time. Right, I, it's such a great name for a delivery company. Are you hungry? <laughs> I wanted to go back, uh, if I may, and, and I apologize to the audience if this is a bit of a tangential question to the line of, of, of chatter that we have going. But you mentioned Shanghai not really being China. And uh, before we get too far away from that comment, I actually wanted to dig in on that just for a second because I think I know exactly what you're talking about because I've lived in two different places in China. I lived in a second tier city in the Northeast and then I lived in Shanghai. So can you explain what you mean to people who don't know why you would say Shanghai is maybe not really what China really is? Yeah, I I think maybe... uh Trying to explain is, is maybe China is a Los Angeles, San Francisco of uh, of China, right? So you have the administrative power, you have the financial power. This is definitely around Beijing. Um, the industrial power is around Chongqing, where a lot of AV manufacturing. It's all around Chongqing, which is this massive city with thirty plus million people in the in the heart of, of China, uh, in the middle, right away. And and you have all the trade business and everything that would be maybe like the, the Miami or the Florida of China, which are more around Guangzhou and, and Hong Kong. And um, that's a little bit the way I, I will look at it. So Shanghai is a massive city, of course, 25 million people. But who knows? Uh, actually, nobody has a clear idea on exactly how many people you have. You have so many people coming in, coming out. This is a place where migrants are going to find their job, right? Um, bring their family. Um, and... and uh, very advanced technologically speaking. Actually, uh, you a lot of the things that are, a lot of people will say if it's working outside of China, it might work in Shanghai. The other way around, it's probably not necessarily true. If it's working in Shanghai, it's probably not necessarily going to work in Beijing or in Guangzhou even. Um, concepts, habits, all the layers in the, let's say, in the social structures, the social layers of, of what who is a Chinese in Shanghai, basically. There is so many granularity, right? It's very different. So you have, of course, the blue color, the workers, the students, the white color, the, the Chinese that are more foreigners, the Chinese that spent so many years outside of China and came back. And you have, and you have all the foreigners that want to be Chinese and you have this uh, complex layer. So when you are doing whatever you are selling, right? A service, a product or whatever it is, or even a, a bowl of curry in our case is, um, 
you have to understand all these different layers and you know that you cannot address the 25 million I was talking about, right? You have to address maybe a very thin layer in all of this. This is not all your market. So even though we say that Shanghai is not all China, which means that your market, the Shanghai market basically is not, doesn't mean the Chinese market. Um, In Shanghai, actually, when you get closer, you know that it's not about everybody in Shanghai that you're going to be able to reach. It's so different. The level of um, like the, the financial freedom, the, the way that they are working, it goes from a few hundred dollars a day, uh, a month, sorry, as a salary, to incredible numbers. One other thing, like uh, maybe uh, people, they were thinking like this 10 years ago, but the ones that have money in China are not the foreigners, right? This is always a misconception that a lot of Chinese they always had before. Now they know that things are different. You know, I, I, I thought that Shanghai was such a unique place in inside China. I, I felt it was actually a little bit separated and a little bit different. I know that if you wanted to be uh, close to kind of the PRC government side of things, you always had your head office registered in, in Beijing. You wanted to be close to them. Um, and that is where most of the wealthiest people in China would work. However... Their families, the wife and kids, were at the property owned in Shanghai. Um, and I think this was a lot of uh, pollution related um, type of, uh, you know, you would have, you know, so much of the money kind of generated and, and based out of Beijing. But then the, those that were wealthy, 80 percent of them were were not actually living uh, full time uh, in Beijing or they put their family elsewhere. I always found that um, Shanghai, you know, if Beijing decreed something uh, and said we were going to do something, we want everybody to do something, the rest of the country would say, okay, and Shanghai would say, we'll think about it. Um, And that, you know, Shanghai was so to me it was it was probably the most multicultural place i've ever had the experience to live where i have some extremely good friends that come from the most vast different places on the planet and it is just you you're just hanging out with with people from austria and brazil and spain and south africa and and just they're from everywhere egypt and israel and and it's like this is amazing and every and it's just it's just all blended and all mixed up together and and shanghai was the most amazing intercontinental um you know uh, metropolis of uh, on on the on the planet it was just it just happened to be based inside china and run by the chinese but it wasn't really china yeah no i i agree and uh, and going back to one other comment before about the the communities and and the relationship because everybody knows in china it's all you need one scene you know like oh relationship relationship and everything and that's also the things where Foreigner as a whole, actually, are much more united as a community. So you have the the, the, the Chinese community and the foreigners, basically, to make it very simple. Uh, because actually, Chinese, they have several generations of relationship. Guanxi, oh, their uncle is a lawyer, he's friend with whatever. And they have that. You, as an entrepreneur, trying to play the same game I was talking about earlier, you don't have those three generations of relationship. So everything you have to do, you, you have to connect very quickly with everybody. And maybe the best connection you're gonna get is is from New Zealand and maybe from Argentina, and, and it doesn't really matter because this group of communities they all need help. Uh, foreigner in China, they all need to to get closer, and it's very difficult to be to create this relationship with the Chinese side. A lot of foreigners 
actually don't manage to do that. I think it's cultural. It's it, maybe some people, they don't know how to handle it, right? Um, but you have been working a lot with the Chinese local ecosystem and you know how important it is to be close and connected on both sides, on the foreigner side, because that's part of the business you kind of do anyway. And on the Chinese side, because you have no other way. If you want to play that game, it's it's in China. It's not, you know, it's, it's not somewhere else. So you have to be, to find a way to get connected. Yeah, I think that's extremely important advice. Introduce us to, um, and let's talk food tech. Um, you know, uh, I want to know, first of all, how has the food scene changed in China over the last 10 years? You know, how's it changed? You know, where's it, where's it going? And then let's tie in how tech has infused itself into the food and beverage space, especially, you know, with, with what you're doing and, and your work, um, problems that food tech is trying to solve and, 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 and to what extent can we, can food be reimagined? I'm, I'm packing a lot into this kind of this one topic, but I want to cover the last 10 years, food tech, how has it come together? Where's it going? And, uh, why is China such a special place for it? So China, I mean, the Chinese culture, it, they are spending a lot of time around the table. I mean, meals, food, it's extremely important. Uh, but they have very different way to, to, to consuming the, 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 this part of their day. Um, in France, you always have these big stereotypes where people are going to spend two hours around the table for lunchtime and having wine and bread and everything. China is going to be very differently. Um, and, and, and over the past few years, uh, the delivery business has changed everything because you can get anything delivered 24 hours, right? Anything basically delivered to your home uh, in 24 hours. And talking about uh, the differentiation and in, in the uh, versatility and the, the portfolio of food that is available now in Shanghai, where of course you will have every kind of Chinese food, but you also have pretty much access to every kind of global food, like from Africa, from the US, from South America. You have so many different trends. And actually, the, the, the Chinese consumer, at least the Shanghainese consumer, are liking that. And they are experiencing new things. And we, we went through a big a few years of Latino trends where Latino food was everywhere because, I don't know, there was something in Shanghai. And they like the vibes, the music. And, and very often, and that's the reason why also we are in Thai food, is very often it's linked to travel. It's linked to the good vibes that they experience somewhere. And it's a way also for them to, to, to travel back to their holidays in Thailand if they manage to go to an island sometime. So there is still this thing. On the food tech uh, and the habits, so now you have access to all of this. Everything can be delivered very quickly. It doesn't matter where you are based in Shanghai. Um, so you can get that. Of course, uh, with all of this means the digital payment was a big change because then you can order and pay whatever very quickly anywhere. So those, of course, on Alibaba and the, the Alipay and WeChat uh, make things easier. Um, then now, something that is very big that always have been big around the world, but I think that with all these digital solutions, it's everything that is linked to uh, loyalty. So all these loyalty points, how do you convert the money that you are spending offline to the same brand online and maybe on different stores. And now with all the solution, you can really, as soon as you get a consumer somewhere in one of your touch points, you can convert them in whatever you have as long as they enter this ecosystem. Um, and I think that has been a big improvement and also the barrier of entry for this kind of business or 
Now every kind of restaurant, even the noodle store down the street uh, at uh, with a bowl of soup for $3, maybe $2, will have a loyalty program. Um, and it's going to be very interesting, right? Because now they have a, a touch point with their consumer on a regular basis. They do retargeting. So even this now it's happening at, at a very, very low level of uh, a restaurateur. So more touch point, more communication, uh, more interaction in the different things. So we know that Chinese are very big on breakfast, lunch, and dinner, but snacking is also extremely big in, in China. And now we go back to what I was saying uh, maybe earlier on the tea flavors where you have all these drinks uh, category that are very big because the bubble tea, it's like you, you don't know if you are drinking or eating. You know, it's a mix of all, both. And you have all these segments of how people are going to buy something to eat or drink between their breakfast, lunch, lunch and dinner, and after late snack. Um, and this is a huge category. But with uh, COVID, COVID uh, in, impacted a lot on the way people were uh, eating. And now it's all about, at least in Shanghai, it's all about healthy, healthy snack, healthy drink, healthy food, healthy whatever. So, so there is this big trend that we, we can talk a lot about. And that's impacted the food take a lot. Yeah, I really wanted to ask about that because I feel, uh, you know, when we look at the fitness industry um, and when we look at, you know, some of the other products that are really starting to sell very, very well, e-commerce and other, you know, um, I, I think that there has, I don't think there's been a, it hasn't been a full shift, but it is underway. There is a health movement. Um, how is health uh, changing uh, food, eating habits, eating times, snack. How is it is it impacting the entire industry there? Yeah, I, th I think it's touching every every kind of um, vendors, basically brands or F and B location. Everything is trying to bring a little bit of this. So we have the trend of the alternative protein, uh, of course, that is very big. China uh, is is putting a lot of. Uh, a uh, lot of spotlight on these things. I think it's also very, very strategic. And uh, this is like, you, you, maybe something you don't know, but for example, it's very difficult for to import salt in China, right? You cannot bring salt to China. It's all controlled by the Chinese government because it's a strategic ingredient. So uh, it's very difficult. And I, I'm ready to bet that everything that is alternative protein is going to be also kind of the same thing in the future especially because of the pork industry is so big in China. How do you replace pork, right? So if China, they cannot start growing and having, you know, tons of breeds of pork everywhere in China. It's not possible to, to sustain what everybody is eating. But controlling something that could be alternative to that with local companies developing this kind of alternative protein, I think it can be a very strategic investment and controlled by the Chinese group. Uh, authorities in the future, like they will do it with salt or with other uh, very specific ingredients, right? Um, so alternative protein, we know that um, Beyond and Impossible, they have been putting a lot of money coming in, dealing with Starbucks and all of this. I think that in talking with a lot of uh, importer distributors, we all agree that yes, there is a trend, but it might take years, maybe a decade to actually really get into the habit. So let's see uh, if it's a gimmick, how long is going to last? Because there is always the same thing in China, very hot at the beginning, go down. But then if you survive long enough, the, the Chinese consumers, they will say, oh, they have been here for a while. Okay, now there is trust uh, that is back in, right? So um, this is going to be uh, very interesting. 
on the health uh, uh, part also, um, on the drink, beverage, uh, beverage is very, very strong in China. They, they are like, you need to, for people who have been in China, everybody's carrying their little bottle with their tea. There is always somewhere you can refill the hot water and everything. So basically drinking is very important and it's absolutely part of the day-to-day uh, for younger age to older age. So you have a lot of drink company. We know Genki Forest, for example, that is a massive brand took China by storm with uh, basically uh, low sugar, uh, low added sugar, low calorie, low everything you want, right? And, and it's just a flavored water. And this is a huge category because um, Chinese are not very strong on alcoholic beverage. So this is not really, they will go and pay premium for a good alcoholic drink, a liquor, a spirits, a cocktail, or even a good bottle of wine. But a younger generation, we see the same trend like all around the world. People, they don't really want to drink that much alcohol anymore. So, so art sales are very big also, low beverage, uh, low alcohol, sorry, uh, low sugar and everything. And that's a new trend. How do you get a drink that goes between the glass of water, basically, and a beer, a cocktail, or wine, which could be too much alcohol, too much sugar, too much calorie? So, so this is a big trend. You have the tea, the snacking. I mean, so right now, everything that is doing, uh, we are working because Next Step Studio, the company that I'm running, is a venture builder around the early stage uh, food entrepreneur, food tech entrepreneur. So we focus on brands, finished product on technology that goes behind, like a loyalty program, but can be inventory software or whatever. Um, and F&B concepts that are innovative in the way they deliver the value proposition. Right now, we are working with a lot of drinks that are, for example, tea-based mixed with fruit. Tea-based mixed with uh, monk fruit as a sugar base instead of having additional fruit. So all these categories right now are very hot. Uh, to Investors are looking into that a lot. It's all local. Um, there is a big trend. But again, Shanghai first. I want to ask you about, and it's it's called Next Step Studio, and we're gonna I'm gonna talk about that in a second. Um, just a couple of real quick answers, probably. Um, talk to me a little bit about uh, whether vegetarian or veganism is a thing in China. Yes, no, why, why not? And then um, how aware of the dangers when it comes to you know, like you said, salt or sodium, sugars, fats, and just you know, calorie intakes, that kind of stuff. What are they paying attention to? And, and what are they maybe not? Before I was in hospitality management, I have a bachelor in, in, in Chinese civilization. So uh, food and all this yin-yang situation that we all heard about, um, it's very important in the Chinese food. So that's the reason why also most of the time you will have to go to a traditional Chinese restaurant. Actually, they don't serve you a drinks necessarily because technically your meal is is full enough, is complete enough so that you don't really need to have an additional drink with that, right? Consumption is changing a little bit. It was true 10 years ago. It's a little bit less true right now, at least in big cities. Um, but that was the idea. Or it was coming from the soup. So your drink or beverage is coming from the soup that always come with your meal. So this is on the equilibrium, the balance that they have between the different ingredients. So they are very uh, knowledgeable about the salt and, and all of these things. Um, so they are very aware of that. Going back to vegan, uh, vegetarianism and, uh, and vegan product in general, this is something that is very interesting. And I, I gave a lot of speech about that, uh, talking about alternative uh, proteins. This biculture, Chinese, uh, is linked to Buddhism, is linked to all of this. And it is vegan already. 
So um, having a meal that doesn't have meat in it, it's absolutely common. You have so many dishes that don't have anything like this. And nobody is, is thinking, oh, I'm missing protein because the protein is somewhere. It's just not in the shape of a meat, right? Or not looking like a meat. So that's why it was very interesting for me when I saw all these big companies like Beyond and everything trying to come and having something like look like a, like a patty for a burger. But the but, but Chinese uh, consumer, they don't associate veganism with something that should look like a steak. You know, and, and that's why I think that now we are in the second phase of this alternative protein uh, category where people they understand that, okay, it doesn't have to look like a meatball. It doesn't have to look like this because anyway, for a lot of vegans here, it's about the taste. It's not really about how it looks like, right? So so that's why I think it's, uh, it's, it's changing a lot. Uh, so Chinese are already very vegan uh, in per nature, let's say, per culture. What do you think is the nutritional IQ of most people in, in China? Are they as aware and intelligent across all things to do with nutrition? The new generation, the millennials, and even the, the, the younger generation, they are more and more conscious about what they are eating. And that's the reason why there is room for people that are a little bit more uh, innovative in their approach and try to take some risk on being differentiated themselves. Um, and, and I think that the average consumer in, in China, they eat also by tradition. So that's the reason why in many, many Chinese restaurants, you will always find some dishes that are always the same in every Chinese restaurant. You will find the same thing, right? As a foreigner, you got to learn those three meals and you are good to go. You can order everywhere in China. Um, but but that's a kind of the things you have. So the problem is that they have a very different kind of understanding about what is good. What does it mean good, right? Good for us, it's, oh, it tastes good. It smells good and everything. For Chinese, I was always making fun. Oh, this meal looks maybe horrible to you based on your standard. It maybe doesn't smell good, but they will all say, oh, it's good for the skin. It's good for the hair. It's good for something. So they have this kind of knowledge, but I think it's just by hearsays and tradition it's kind of cultural, like, oh, my grandma was always saying something. Do they actually really know? Mostly, I will say, no, they don't. Um, but I think it's, it's changing with the younger generation that are also willing to try. With Urban Food Group, like what we have on Urban Tuk Tuk, we develop the Thai food because we are close. It's Asian food. The reason why we did that is because we know that out of 20 mil, um, Chinese consumers in Shanghai will eat 18 times Chinese food. Okay, something they know they are comfortable with. Maybe one time they will go for Asian food, Asian food, including Japanese, Korean, uh, Southeast Asian food. And maybe once in a while they will grab a burger or a pizza or a KFC or whatever it is. But this is still the ratio that we are talking about, right? So they want to try. There is so many new things that they are willing to try, but still. Chinese food first, right? Um, and because that's something they know uh, with it. So they are not so adventurous yet uh, on this, but the younger generation that are used to travel, that are very well connected, they want to try this new salad, this new pizza, this new kind of burger. And that's why you have so many chains uh, from the rest of the world, Europe or US, that are entering China with new concepts like this more and more. Last food question. Is there such a thing as chow mein in China? Uh, wow. <laughs> That's always been the funniest thing to me. When I tell people back here home in, in Canada and they're blown away to realize chow mein is, does not exist 
It's a totally made up American Chinese food thing. Doesn't exist. Not actually China. But you know that you have a um, American or Chinese American that opened Chinese restaurants, but with American menus in China. So you have a couple of things that are working. Actually, they they are addressing a very different kind of market, and they're all looking at what's happening on on Friends and all these series, and say, oh, I want to have this Chinese food that those guys are having in the US. You talked a little bit about Next Step uh, Studio. Where did it come from? Why are you doing it? Why is it fun to do this kind of stuff in China? I was an early stage entrepreneur and investor in this Thai restaurant. And I started to see trends that are very interesting to me. Uh, and I said, okay, there is something to, to do there. I think FNB is still a very sexy uh, business. Yes, it doesn't have the multiple that you could get in tech startups and everything. But if you do things right, which is not so complicated, let's say, um, you have a sustainable business. Uh, and we saw with the crisis that actually FNB in China definitely survived. But now with all the techs that is plugging into this, you get the business even bigger and more interesting. So when you see that out of 15 square meter with two and a half people in average, we are able to launch around like 250 to 300 mil from one location. Uh, I mean, that changed everything, right? I don't have to invest uh, millions of RMB in uh, developing a 200 square meter space, right? So, so uh, this uh, business always have been interesting. F&B is also something that if you don't have the right connection, it's very complicated because you have to deal with a landlord. FDA, it's extremely strict in China. We all think that, oh, Chinese kitchen are dirty and everything. But look at the FDA in China. is much, much more complicated to deal with than in France or in the US. That's for sure. Um, and, and so all of these rules makes, creates a lot of barrier that is not so easy for people that have a good idea. And, and I think that's where I, I stepped in. I realized to have many people that came to me and say, Hey, great. You, you raise money for those guys to develop this business. You have this chain of restaurant, you have this wine bar or whatever it is. Um, can you help me? Okay. And for me, uh, when I was young, I watched a documentary about Lee Kashin, which is this very famous entrepreneur from Hong Kong that made his fortune by buying back a lot of malls and buildings when um, Hong Kong was supposed to return to China and a lot of people left. And this guy bought everything. And I was watching this documentary when I was interested in in, in going to China at some point, where every time you were spending six Hong Kong dollars in China, one was going directly to his pocket. And that, I like this business model. So you go to the metro, there is money to him. You go to the uh, 7-Eleven or movie theater, whatever, there is some money for him. And I say, okay, FNB is something that I like, but FNB people in, China, in Shanghai, we consider that people order five times a week, right? Um, in average uh, consumer. How do we make them consume and order something that is linked to Next Step Studio? So that's why in our portfolio, so I say portfolio because as a uh, venture builder, we take shares in most of the projects that we are taking. So we don't take shares only in restaurants, but also in spirits or new kind of art sellers or the new kind of drinks or food or whatever that are going to be using all these other locations that we have as a distribution point. Um, we're going to benefit also from the online platform that we build behind that, where all these things are connected and we're building our CRM system so we can retarget so that we make sure that people on Mondays, they will have a pad thai. On Tuesdays, they will order this drink, on et cetera, et cetera, right? And, and for me, that's the game that I like to play. So it's really about helping entrepreneurs very early stage, uh, being able to work with them on their business model, making sure that I'm always sitting on the same side of the table 
talking to suppliers, talking to partners, uh, so that I can open doors because I've been here for 16 years, uh, doing a lot of things around that. So uh, after a few, some time, you start to have some connection. And people, they will give probably me, give me more credits because I'm here than if this earlier stage with an entrepreneur with a very good idea. Um, and, and, and that's where I like to do is to be able to have an impact on the entrepreneur, come very early, and make sure that those businesses are going to be successful first by connecting with the other business that we have because they are all customers basically from each other. And that's where the fun is. And then once you start raising money for one guy, you identify the investors. These investors, they tell you a bit more about what they are looking for, what kind of tickets. And then you say, okay, actually, I have exactly the right business for you. And you told me about this two months ago. Maybe this is for you now. And this year, I think we closed, well, no, not I think, but we already closed three deals uh, since the beginning of the year. And we are closing two more, I think, uh, before August. Um, very early stage, small tickets, but fast. Who are a couple of people that you could maybe recommend, you, people that you would love to hear on the show and listen to, or that you think our, our audience would love to hear talk on the show? Absolutely. I think that uh, one of the guys that uh, we should definitely be talking to is Someone like Scott Minoy, for example, which is the founder of Element Fresh. Maybe you already had him. This guy, I've seen it all. It's, uh, he has like 38 locations. He knows uh, what it is to, 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 to fail in China, to raise money, to be like all the stories uh, back and forth. It's uh, absolutely uh, interesting. Um, and he's a chef, but now he's running a massive uh, company at the beginning. I think this is uh, very interesting. I think on the drinks or, or, the, or the habits, uh, Jessica Gleason, which is a, a lady that was working for Starbucks. She entered Starbucks in the U.S. when there was less than 50 locations. And she brought. She was part of the negotiating team uh, of Starbucks entering China. And she's an advisor on several of our projects. She's the reason why there is one Starbucks opening every 15, 15 hours in China uh, because she put all the process and the marketing and how Chinese have to be organized, the SOPs, the license, and all the technology on linked to the marketing and the touch point. Definitely a great person to talk to also. Greg, thank you very much for coming on the show today. It's been an absolute treat uh, to, to talk to you today. So thanks very much. Thanks a lot, Todd. Thanks for having me. Happy to share. Growing a company is hard. Doing it in a foreign market? Exponentially so. The best piece of advice I can give you is not to do it alone. When you start looking across the pond for further expansion possibilities, and I sincerely hope that you do, make sure you choose the right partners to do it with. My good friends at WPIC Marketing and Technologies have almost 20 years of experience helping brands just like yours enter China. I hope you enjoyed this episode of The Negotiation. And if you're interested in being a guest or want to connect with me or any of our team, please reach out to us at podcast at WPIC.co. And be sure to rate, comment, and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Zai Jing.